This program is brought to you by SoundsTrue.com. At SoundsTrue.com, you can find hundreds of downloadable audio learning programs, plus books, music, videos, and online courses and events. At SoundsTrue.com, we think of ourselves as a trusted partner on the spiritual journey, offering diverse, in-depth, and life-changing wisdom. SoundsTrue.com. Many voices, one journey. You're listening to Insights at the Edge. Today my guest is Don Oscar Moreau Quesada. Don Oscar Moreau Quesada is a shamanic healer and teacher from Peru and originator of the Pachacuti Mesa tradition of cross-cultural shamanism. He dedicates his life to the global revitalization of shamanic awareness as a means of restoring sacred trust between humankind and the natural world. With Sounds True, Don Oscar Moro Quesada has created a new audio program called Healing Light, an apprenticeship in Peruvian shamanism, where he shares the principles and methods of Peruvian curanderismo, guided shamanic journeys of transformation and healing, empowering rituals, and a treasury of other insights, many shared here with a Western audience for the first time. In this episode of Insights at the Edge, Don Oscar and I spoke about the central role of building, consecrating, and working with an altar in the Pachacuti Mesa tradition, and how an altar is an outer reflection of an inner map. We also talked about how Western psychology and shamanism can inform and support each other, and the important role of community in healing. We talked about what it might mean to connect with our star origins. And finally, what the Pachacuti Mesa tradition tells us about the time we're living in. Here's my conversation with someone my heart opens to and I can call my good brother, Don Oscar Miro Quesada. As we set out on the voyage of our conversation, Don Oscar, I wonder if you'd be willing to begin with a prayer or a blessing of some kind for the dialogue we're about to have, something that would bring in all of our listeners. Gladly, my good sister. Let us Bring awareness to our breath, relax our bodies, and allow our hearts to cascade forward the love of our essence. Aligned with this open, receptive awareness of who we are, I offer this Kitra invocation. Haili Wilka Hanak Pachamanda Saiwa Tiyayukui Teksemuyoh Hatung Kaipang Pachakamak Nyokapi Songkoipi Tupakui Kausaipi Kawakui 
Kausai ni yoh, unai ni yoh, kanchai ni yoh, hamuraiku ina. Nyokaiku, kaichai parunakuna, pachamamak churikuna, hama ina songko tikak, futuininta apumui runakunak. Haili, haili, hayu runakuna. Loosely translated from the language of my ancestors, known as Runasimi, or Quechua. This prayerful invocation of alignment is as such. Praises and victory to the sacred shaft of light from the heavens. Welcome, great power of the universe. Great originating mystery, creator, creatrix, meet yourself in my heart, see yourself in my life. With life, with love, and with light did we come here. We are people born of sun and moon, all children of Mother Earth. Please bring the blossoming of the flower of the heart to humankind. So mode it be. Thank you. I've noticed, Don Oscar, that you're tremendously gifted at invocations and ceremonies. And I'm curious to know more what's happening inside you. What are you aligning with when you're performing an invocation or a ceremony? It's a experience of communion with the great originating mystery that I have learned to honor with reverence in all of my doings. So to give put what I do into words is a challenge, yet Best defined, I could express it as a sanctification of the gratitude that I experience for the gift of life. And in my body, I feel a letting go, a softening, a disappearing. And the prayer of my ancestors comes speaking to me, whispering to me. And all I do is move my lips and offer it forward in loving service to the world. And can you tell us more about the Quechua language? Well, of course. Quechua Runasimi is a onomatopoeic uh, language. In other words, uh, its words mimic the sounds of the natural world. And it is not a descriptive language at all. There's no nouns. It's, it's, it's a verb-based language. So every word is an action. And so it's a, a vital, living, pulsing expression of one's solidarity with the universe, with Mama Pacha, with Mother Nature. And every time 
there's two types of, of runasimi, kapaksimi and then runasimi. Kapaksimi is the high ceremonial uh, language which I used in the prayer that I just offered. And then runasimi is a language that has to do with middle world, kaipacha, uh, life, agricultural duties, family rearing uh, approaches, and um, the development of, uh, of good relationships among our two-leggeds. And they both have their place. And one is not uh, favored over the other because the sacred and the profane or, uh, you know, the divine and, and, and the secular are experiences one and the same when it comes to the use of language or word uh, by the uh, people of the Andes. And therefore, it's a, it's a language that truly catalyzes, and I personally, from my own experience, deeply feel awakens uh, a bonding with a soul-infused reality, with a pulsing, vibrant uh, wisdom in all things. And in both versions of the language, both applications, there are no nouns. I mean, it's so interesting. I start thinking about how would I even begin speaking in English without nouns? Well, yes. I, if you use the uh, the words, let's say the word apu, A-P-U, which refers to a uh, a mountain deity or a venerated uh, uh, pilgrimage uh, destination in the glacial highlands of Peru uh, to describe that that is a sacred mountain, it'll just remain a descriptive word. Yet we never use the word apu by itself. It's always in combination with the role of the apu in being the sustainer of the well-being of the human community that lives at its at its um, at its skirt at its base. So, therefore, it's uh, the language is never used as an isolated experience, yet as a participatory mystique. I, I trust this makes sense yeah. to our verbal linear. Uh, uh, audience. Yeah. Okay, Don Oscar, you're the originator of a tradition that you call the Pachacuti Mesa tradition of cross-cultural shamanism. And to begin our conversation here, I would love it if you could introduce our listeners to that tradition. Pachacuti. P-A-C-H-A-K-U-T-I. In Quechua means pacha, world, place, space, realm, earth, ultimately consciousness. A soul-infused bardo, much like in the notion of the Tibetan realms of experience. And so pacha, it's important never to literalize that word or reduce it to just this third-dimensional earth. 
Yet to understand that our experience of any plane of existence is based on the level of awareness that we have cultivated in our yearning for a unitary experience of what it means to be human. So Pacha is a realm of consciousness that combined with an understanding that the only constant in earth life here in the Kaipach in the middle world is change, is transformation, joined with the suffix kuti, K-U-T-I, which means to change, to transform, to reverse, to turn on its head, basically, it means world reversal or cosmic transformation. So it is a plane of human experience, a world that's both an inner and outer honoring of the miracle that is life, from a point of view of always remaining open to the shape-shifting, liminal aspect of life. So Pachakuti Mesa is a sacred transformation that is managed and directed upon an altar ground configured by various power objects and sacred items that carry within them a story, a life, a sentience. And through the placement in certain specific patterning is able to open up healing virtues, healing potentialities within the life of both the healee and the healer in sacred relationship with each other. And so, Pachacuti Mesa is a vehicle for healing transformation in the world. And I chose that term because of its uh, intrinsic significance in the life ways of my Peruvian ancestors, especially that of Don Celso Rojas Palomino, my primary mentor from the northern coastal area of Peru, a town called Salas in Chiclayo, where I learned my uh, Wachuma or Tamasca curanderismo arts, as well as my mentor Don Benito Coriwaman Vargas from the southeastern highland region of Peru near Cusco, the village of Huasao, where he uh, offered me training in the Alto Misayoc, or the highland shaman priesthood earth honoring uh, lineage involving despacho, sapacheta building, and things of that nature. So the Pachacuti Mesa tradition of cross-cultural shamanism is a merging of both of these currents of wisdom and healing practice that I was exposed to for many, many moons in my country, together with, uh, it's very inclusive and very adaptive and uh, and relevant, uh, historically uh, uh, very relevant to uh, what discoveries in in science, uh, 
the great uh, artistic masterpieces of the world and the various wisdom traditions uh, from the four corners uh, have also contributed can be integrated within its cosmology in a way that we have uh, many languages in which the rituals of the Mesa can be explained as well as transmitted to people from diverse ideological persuasions, walks of life, and cultural backgrounds. That is why I term it cross-cultural shamanism, because it contains a language from, that is universal. So the altar or the mesa is very, very central. And I'm curious, even as we're talking now, is there an altar in the room where you are? I mean, we're talking through an audio line, so I can't see where you are. But are you working with an altar even as we speak? My entire home is a sanctuary, Tammy, as I know, given your uh, sacred earth walk, uh, your own home must be as well. So I would say that every room I'm in, and right now I'm in our home office, it is, uh, it's a sanctuary, it's an altar, it's a, what we call a banco, or a, a, a platform in which the ceremonial arts of, of this tradition are amply uh, and visibly uh, expressed in images on the walls, in sacred ceremonial items on small uh, altar spaces, individual altar spaces in the cardinal and intercardinal directions. And they're all drawing from our altar mayor, which is our home medicine lodge that's in another part of the house, uh, to my northwest, which is where the, the true uh, uh, cosmic control panel lies. That's where the main temple is. Yet every place of the house is, you know, consciously linked energetically to that fountain. So explain to me what the main principles are, if you will, that go into altar making for you. And in this sense, making of your home, your office, what are the main ideas that are informing that? Creating or co-creating, better said, an open, receptive, healing space to make visible that which ordinarily remains invisible to our five sensorial human experience. To ensure that through the aesthetic power of a symmetrically arranged mandala-like medicine ground, the witness to it will feel a stirring, an evolutionary impulse within their own heart and be led to want to deepen their understanding of that quickening. And therefore, the ceremonies that are uh, the unfolding, really, of the perennial wisdom embodied in the way that 
the altar is ritually configured, uh, offer an, an intuitive restructuring of our human mind. Uh, given that it is an outer reflection of an inner map, it is a geography of the human spirit and the rest of the world. And the broken off parts of self and world are able to be brought together in the symmetry and the mandalic-like patterning that is witnessed within the altar ground. So, in a sense, it's a path that honors the balance of power through finding the middle ground. Let's say, Don Oscar, that the listener is brand new to altar making, to altar building, but they would like to do an experiment and get started. Where would they start? How could they start? The first thing is to consider that soul is a priori. Whatever your notion of soul, nuna, anima, whatever you want to call it, open up to the possibility of it having primacy in the world. And therefore, when you walk outdoors and you see a butterfly, a blade of grass, Recognize its sentience, its awareness, its living presence that is just as important and to be revered in equal way that you would any human teacher you may have. So first and foremost, an appreciation of the primacy of soul as universal consciousness. Following that, then honoring that experience of soul by beautifying the world around you. And here's where the Pachakuti Mesa altar ground comes in. It involves a lay, a consecrating of the earth with whatever ritual foods you may have, cornmeal, tobacco, pollen, libation, coca leaves, etc. Then placing a, a ground cloth upon that, squaring the circle, and then upon that ground cloth, patterning symmetrically the five main directions, the south, the west, the north, the east, and the center, yet not like the traditional medicine wheel of Turtle Island or North America, but more like a, a, a nautilus-shelled spiral beginning from the south and spiraling into the center. So we choose a stone or crystal to represent the south, the place of body, physicality, a shell for the west to represent the place of heart or emotional body, a feather or feathers for the north to represent the realm of spirit, a candle in the east to represent the realm of mind, and one's most sacrosanct treasured shamanic artifact or ceremonial item to represent the center, which is the soul. So from south, in a clockwise fashion, as you work the powers of the mesa, you move from earth to water to air to fire to ether or quintessence. 
allowing those four dimensional effluences to be ritually uh, activated and directed through these anchoring objects in directional pieces throughout the other secondary artes, what we call them, or medicine pieces that you can incorporate within that altar space as well. So if you can let go of linear thinking for a moment and dream into an image, a vision of this exquisitely laid out nautilus shell, a Fibonacci spiral that pulsates with golden light upon a ground that has been consecrated and open that vision even wider to an understanding that there is a celestial superior realm, a heavenly sky world, and an interior, shadowy, deeper inner world that coalesces the above and the below into the within in this middle world, the altar that you are in front of is an extension of your own inner cosmology, of your own inner universe. And that is a very powerful tool and ally to have for the more beautiful the expression of your inner light in the outer world evolution is at hand mm -hmm. now it seems that in the Pachacuti Mesa tradition that having this physical expression the physical altar is really important that it's some kind of amplifier if you will and i'm curious if you could explain that more why the physical altar itself is so important in the same manner that physical temples or ceremonial grounds medicine wheels the world over have been important as um, strange attractors, as magnetic sources of attraction, of, of reverence, of honoring uh, the beauty and the sanctity of earth. The Pachacuti Mesa fulfills the same function, yet um, we do understand in the Kamaska uh, wisdom tradition that everything outside of us is a tool, a stepping stone toward ultimately understanding that we are uh, the, the ultimate ground of being and that whatever we choose to express as part of that understanding, it, it behooves us that it be something that mimics it, that mirrors it in a manner that is meaningful and, and significant 
to ourselves and other people that we share our inner life with. So really, the reason for the quotes-unquotes reliance on physical objects or artes is because over time, their repeated use, their their, their participation in ancestral ceremonial enactments uh, aligns with a, a morphic field, a morphogenetic template that draws in the powers, forces, virtues, and wisdoms of the ancestral peoples that first uh, woke up and said, if we create a mirror on earth that reflects the order and pattern of the divinity in the heavens, then our lives will be heaven on earth. And so therefore, the continued practice with the foundational pieces that I described before and the prescribed order of our rituals for nurturing the mother, for feeding the unseen world, and for effecting benevolent transformational change in our human communities becomes a a reflection, becomes a a fulfillment of the evolutionary impetus within the dance of creation itself. I feel that there's value to using these not as permanent fixtures in one's life, yet as borrowed tools, borrowed friends that will make our life happier. I think many people have the experience of setting up an altar at one point or another, not the kind of altar you've described here, which I think requires perhaps a a level of training you offer in this new series with Sounds True called Healing Light. You go into great detail about how to set up the altar, consecrate it, and work with it. But I think many people have the experience of setting up some kind of altar or another and then abandoning it, if you will. They forget about it. A couple months go by, oh yeah, there's that altar I set up. What happens when we set up an altar and then we forget about it? Two things can happen. One, the same thing that happens when you adopt a pet and for whatever reason you need to go on a long vacation or hiatus from caretaking of that pet and and instead of leaving it alone you find someone to take over your your family duties. Uh, what happens to that pet is the same thing that would happen to those altar pieces if you pass them on to somebody who's unprepared and not trained in in the caretaking of your Pachacuti Mesa. Yet the other thing is that the the sentience within those power objects itself is just as awake as your own uh, most advanced perception of of the sacred world of sacred dimension. So they in themselves 
just like in a pre-Columbian artifact that has been buried under cultural silt and physical silt for millennia, all of a sudden is rediscovered and restored to its beauty in a museum and if fortunate enough, uh, you know, finds its way to the hands of a camasquero, of a curandero, a curandera for use in the healing rituals. It's never lost. It's what we call cuenta, its count, its history, its story, its awareness. So it can be with a very simple offering of aromatic waters, incenses, rattling, drumming, singing to it, evoking, invoking, and decreeing its healing virtues come back to life and its fullness. So nothing is ever lost. It's not like somebody who has a, has created an altar just like a, a simple meditation ground with an, uh, you know, a figure of the Buddha or, or other avatar and, and has abandoned their practice and the altar remains dusty in the corner. It does not mean that that's going to impact the life of that person in a way that makes it, uh, you know, unhealthy. That, that said, Tammy, uh, at times, especially if you are an, uh, a practitioner of the Pachacuti Mesa and have a, a, a medicine ground, you, you are beholden to always feed it, to always speak to it, to deepen your intimacy with it. If not, it can start to eat your own, we call this golpear, uh, it can start to take your own life force and start to eat it just to sustain itself, the mesa as a whole. And that results in people feeling listless and, you know, fatigued and off balance and, you know, off kilt. The minute they start feeding the altar or going outdoors and offering some, uh, you know, tobacco or, or sweet grass to the earth, that life force starts to be restored. So there's a an aini, a sacred reciprocity, a relationship of balanced dualism that needs to be maintained by earnest practitioners of this art. Now, Don Oscar, I know that you're extensively trained in Western psychology as well as shamanic healing, and that you've actually taught transpersonal psychology at the university level. And I'd love to know how you see these two approaches, the approaches of shamanic work and the approach of transpersonal psychology, how you see them overlapping, differing, helping each other, informing each other? It's a big question. Yes, and it's a significant question that would require more time than our interview allows, Tammy. Yet, um, as I feel into, into what you're asking, Contemporary psychotherapy um, has unfortunately, at least in, in most cases, forgotten that it is about soul. And 
and not about you know fixing things. And the difference between that and a shamanic approach to being a curandero, which as a matter of fact derives uh, from the what the Christian priests used to be called uh, in terms of being the caretakers of the soul or the curate. Curar, to heal in Spanish, was the word that assigned to the cura or priest that would go from village to village healing people of spiritual ills and of physical uh, conditions. So to heal in the sense of, of a soul-based uh, therapeutic approach such as shamanism is to, number one, honor that whatever that person is experiencing, no matter how distraught, distressing, and painful it may be, has a very important purpose in their life. And that underneath the experience of fragmentation and a breakdown, there's a breakthrough to another level, a rite of passage occurring, an initiation. And that ultimately, the recognition of one's inherent wholeness and enoughness as a human being will show itself, because that's what the soul wants. The soul wants to be recognized as whole, not fragmented. So just that understanding alone differentiates shamanic healing from modern psychotherapy, which is focused on uh, illuminating the what's not going right and trying to fix it through reframing the cognitive makeup of the person, their, their way of thinking. And it's not a therapy based on anima, but on psyche as psychology, not as soul. So we've lost that. Now, I've, my main interest as a psychotherapist was, has been to address the transpersonal or psycho-spiritual dimensions of people. And doing so allowed me this, the opportunity to introduce people to a, a more shamanic uh, befriending of, of their quotes-unquote illness, of their dis-ease, to not see what they were experiencing as something that we have to rush through to fix, rather than as a daemon, uh, an inspiration that painstakingly can be uh, befriended and internalized as light rather than darkness. And that's shamanism in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Insights at the Edge, produced by Sounds True. We welcome you to learn more about our collection of more than a thousand learning programs and receive three free gifts just for visiting us. Go to soundstrue.com backslash free. That's soundstrue.com backslash free. And now back to Insights at the Edge.
Do you think there are certain conditions that might best be addressed through a psychological approach and other conditions that would best be addressed by a shamanic approach? Once again, uh, the question itself creates a dichotomy. So uh-huh. I'd, like, I'd, I'd, I'd answer by saying this. Um, in ancient literature, there's much reference to the distinction between soul and spirit. Um, and this is, this is an important consideration. Um, in general terms, based on my understanding, uh, spirit is seen as focused on transcending the limits of our personal time-bound concrete life. You know, it's fascinated by the future and wants to know the meaning of everything and uh, likes to stretch and sometimes break down altogether the laws of nature through technology or prayer. Uh, And it's associated with idealism, ambition, uh, and a necessarily rewarding and inspiring approach to living. The soul, on the other side, on the other, uh, is is very comfortable with mystery, with the unknown. Uh, if in the spirit we try to transcend our humanity, with soul we try to enter our humanity fully and and realize it completely. So, when you ask about if there are psychological approaches that I would favor over a shamanic approach. Uh, to ameliorate suffering, anxiety, or distress in, 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 in the sufferer, um, I would say, if only absolutely necessary, that distress, that psychic pain, uh, I'd attenuate through psychopharmaceutical means and, uh, and quickly uh, in, introduce the person, the sufferer, into a community of people who have had transpersonal crises, spiritual emergencies, even those that have been labeled as disassociative psychotic episodes, but that with time and with community support have been able to transform and shapeshift that uh, breakdown into a breakthrough that no longer had the demons and dragons speaking to them inside of their head, but they were able to gain mastery over those same powers and forces by externalizing them within sacred ceremonial acts in their life. And so, temporarily, as we do in Curanderismo as well, because people come to our healing sessions in northern coastal Curanderismo with all sorts of disorders of a psychological as well as physical nature and we have a very broad uh, uh, distinct uh, uh, understanding that there are two types of illnesses the illnesses of god and the illnesses of of harm and so even people who come with uh, with systemic debilitating disorders such as cancer diabetes multiple sclerosis lupus and, and the like, it still involves an entering into dialogue 
with creator, creatrix, and ascertaining through one's own self uh, the purpose of that condition in one's life, even though it comes from a source that is beyond one's own doing. Then those elements of harm, which is, contains all of the conditions known to modern psychological medicine, such as depression, uh, obsessive-compulsive disorders, the broad range of psychoneuroses and things of that nature. There we expose the person to an all-night communion with a sacred plant medicine in the northern coast, specifically the Tricuserios Pachanoi, or Huachuma, the San Pedrito cactus, in which through that all-night ceremony, the the experience uh, that of that psychological pain is reconfigured by with the help of the maestro or maestra so that it becomes uh, it becomes understood as in the hands of the experiencer so that it is named it is citada it's given a name it's identified for its purpose in their life and then it is asked with a deep understanding that one has the power to uh, command it to leave because it has overextended its visit as an uninvited guest and be cast into the transformational field of the mesa that is in front of them. And I'll tell you, my good sister, as a Western-trained psychologist, I have seen cases brought to our mesadas uh, that would ordinarily be chronic, lifetime challenges in our, in our Western society, uh, many times needing hospitalization, psychiatric hospitalization, be resolved in a matter of two or three all-night uh, mesadas or healing sessions with the wachuma. And that's what prompted me into um, working with the Organization of American States and developing satellite programs and mainstreaming folk healing into the uh, national uh, mental health care delivery system because of how astounded I was with, with the cure rate. Um, so it's a long-winded answer, but I hope this gives you a little idea of where I'm at. Yeah, it's very helpful. I want to just clarify one thing. When you're talking about these all-night healing ceremonies, are these ayahuasca healing ceremonies? Is that what you're referring to? Yes. Ayahuasca in the, in the rainforest area of Peru is used in many ways the exact same fashion that the San Pedro cactus, which is a mescaline-based cactus, is used in the northern coast. My formal apprenticeship was in the use of the Huachuma or San Pedro cactus. It's, it's still a, um, a vision plant, yet uh, it has a different spirit in it than the ayahuasca. Yet both of them are used very effectively to reverse um, intractable conditions that uh, that are presented to them. The wisdom of those two plants, they're considered the mother and father vision plants of our people. The wisdom within them is, is 
far superior to the alkaloid, <laughs> to the molecular structure. And that's what is the key in shamanic use of them, in calling forth their spirit, not their molecular medicinal properties. I'm going to dig in a little deeper, if that's okay. I notice every time you call me, you say, my good sister, I feel happy. So can I call you my good brother? That's who I am. Okay, my good brother. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna <laughs> to dig in a little deeper, which is this whole question of the use of vision plants with challenging psychological situations, personal growth challenges. It's very controversial. And here where I live in Boulder, Colorado, there's so much discussion about it really on both sides. I've been hearing a lot in favor and how important it is to bring this into the culture as a legitimate approach. But I've also been hearing a lot of concern that it's destabilizing for people. People can't integrate the experiences. They're not under necessarily proper care. And people are exploring basically experiences that are beyond their ability to make good use of. So I'm just curious to hear a little more about your view of that controversial issue, really. Certainly. Well, I, I would agree uh, on, on, on both issues that you raise. Uh, first and foremost, uh, applied outside of a traditional uh, cultural context that includes being part of an earth-honoring community and knowing that after your experience of communion uh, and, and healing encounter with these plants, that you're not just going to go home to an isolated apartment in some high-rise, but that you have a tribe, that you have a family, that you have a support system that is not only temporarily you know, uh, brought together for that night, but that is of long-lasting value in, in walking with more depth upon this earth, with more beauty, with more grace is fundamental. For instance, in, in the traditional use of these plants, and unfortunately in my own country of Peru, what's happening is a lot of people from Europe and, and the United States from developed Western nations are coming down, uh, immersing themselves in an ayahuasca experience for you know 10 days or two weeks, and then expecting everything to change and leaving. And that's the fault of the ayahuasquero or ayahuasquera themselves not properly evaluating the person and realizing whether they have the potential to become even more destabilized outside of the traditional context that initially was sustaining of their visionary healing. And so they just cast them out into this unknown territory to deal with it. And the same happens with the... Um, uh, random, uh, arbitrary use of these medicines in your community and uh, other parts of the United States that I've heard of. So, in a nutshell, without, with, without a, a sacred community of like-hearted others, 
it is dangerous. There's no full integration uh, of the realms of consciousness that one has accessed and opened up to. And also, there's no lineage. People don't have a tradition. They don't have a cosmology. They don't have an understanding of the ancestral forces and powers that have been sustaining the apparition of the cactus or the ayahuasca vine upon the earth. All of this needs to be taken in context for this to be a safe medicine to use outside of its geophysical, environmental, and social context. That said, I've also seen people who have been properly evaluated for their ability to, uh, to be changed by an encounter with the sanctity of these plants uh, to benefit deeply. And in my own uh, in my own sacred community of Pachacuti Mesa carriers, under very um, control not controlled uh, properly managed uh, settings, and knowing that the set the mindset of the participants has the spiritual maturity and soul development necessary to use this not just for a, a quick fix, but as a long-lasting initiation into a, a deeper and higher dimension of being, uh, have used these means to accelerate evolution uh, on an individual, community, and, I believe, a planetary level. So I'm open to using them ideally within the original context and maiden ground where they are used, and if not with somebody that is has many, many moons of experience in facilitating this type of uh, transformation. A couple of things that I want to make sure I talk with you about, my good brother, before our conversation ends. One is that when you were talking about the Pachacuti Mesa, the altar, you talked about how the altar connects us to the heavens. And I know that there's an aspect of your work that helps us connect to our star origins. And I wonder if you can speak more about that, our star origins as people. Uh well, you really want to take this uh, to its fullness, don't you, my good sister? <laughs> Can't help myself, my good brother. <laughs> okay, well, this, how could this, we, we, need, we need a month to sit down and talk. <laughs> I'd like that. <laughs> so, well, hopefully uh, Great Spirit will, will orchestrate that possibility soon. So, okay, where do I start with this? Um, hmm. It's no, no. It, it, it's it's not new news that throughout Paleolithic cave drawings and in all the great epics worldwide, you know, there's mention of our star relatives having been uh, sources of great inspiration and civilizing influence upon 
the originally seeded races of this planet. And so if you take that in consideration that we've been looking to the stars for guidance since our first seeding on this planet, and when, as Werner Heisenberg says, the path does not come into view until we observe it, the more we were looking to the stars, the more probable it is that the stars started to look back at us. And so, therefore, uh, the form of its looking back, depending on one's culture-specific origins, took the form of Garuda, of a Vimana, of a metallic UFO, of an ark, or whatever was most meaningful to the people and the culture of that time. Yet, ultimately, our contact with our star origins is really about contact with oneself. This is how we understand it in the more advanced levels of initiation in Kamaska Kuranderismo. And in the, in the Alto Misayok tradition, we have a specific, specific shamanic ceremonies that in, are intended for us to contact what we call our Apugia or Estrella, or the guide, the anthropomorphized form, the human form of the venerated mountain that we are associated to through our initiate as an Alto Misayo. In my case, it's Apu Pachatusan, Staff of the World in Wasau. And so Don Benito sent me on, you know, with fasting, and it's a long story, I mean, if you're interested in details, you can find it in my book, Lessons and Courage. But the thing is that you go to the mountain, you spend the night outside where the snow meets to dry, three days, uh, much like, you know, a vision, uh, a visioning uh, pilgrimage that you do in North America. And you open up to being visited by the star relative associated with that particular mountain. And then upon returning down to the village, if the contact, capital C, is authentic, an Istria, a stone relative that is seems like it's been carved by human hands will we'll, we'll pop out of the earth and show up, and you are to take that. And through that, you journey with it into the star of origin. In the case of my Apugia, it was the Las Siete Cabrias, or known as uh, the Pleiades, right? Uh, and over time, in my journeys with this Istria, with this gift, this stone relative gift that is the embodiment of the associated star to the mountain, I have been allowed entrance to some pretty formidable um, realms uh, of our future as humans. Because this is not about contact with any advanced superior uh, you know, cosmic civilization. It is about understanding that what we're looking for is really ourselves. Any ET is ourselves in the future. We're just taking a little while to catch up to that fact. And beyond the ETs, there are other, even more refined 
luminous expressions of our divinity. So I hate to literalize the star relative piece uh, by saying, yes, it's contact with a spaceship. Sure, I've had that experience. Just like the Dalai Lama, when he was asked, what do you think of ETs? He said, they're fine, thank you. Yet it's no big deal. It's just part of the great continuum of evolving sentience within Gaia and the universe. Now, it's interesting that when you started talking about our star origins in the Pachacuti Mesa tradition, you talked about the seeding on the planet, that human beings were seeded, I presume, from other planets, other parts of the galaxy. That's interesting to me. Well, yes, once again, at the level of carbon-based biological two-legged organisms, there has definitely been influence of cosmic sources in making us who we are. And in many cases, as I mentioned before, that have been depicted in Paleolithic cave art and temple sites and written about in the epics uh, such as the Mahabharata and, and uh, even in the Bhagavad Gita, and the Epic of Gilgamesh, there are mentions of specific descriptions of encounter with these beings from the stars who had a profound influence on the, uh, the humanization of otherwise non-reflexive, non-self-reflexive creatures prior to us becoming uh, almost sapiens. And that was needed uh, at a particular level. Yet, ultimately, as I was trying to emphasize uh, before, my own experience of contact, whether it was with a mothership in Chilca in the this, in this southern desert of Peru, or with scouts, or even with astral projections of the beings inside of these crafts that showed themselves to me and several other people uh, have simply uh, sparked me on to realizing that they are extensions of my most evolved presence and that they are here just like after a good ceremony at a sacred uh, pilgrimage destination, you see a condor or an eagle circling above. They are here just to validate that you're on the right track. When, when they were appearing in human, in, 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 in human communities and and consciously influencing our genetic makeup. That's what I was referring to as star-seeded. Yeah. This was, this was very long ago, pre-written record, and uh, pre-epic, pre-cave paintings, pre-everything, in a time that just now we are starting to remember ourselves through and rediscover. 
would would I say that they are causative uh, and foundational for the reason we are on this earth? I wouldn't say so. I'd say that, like any bodhisattva, they were beholden to check back in and try to lift suffering wherever it was possible. And when that suffering was generalized and threatening the entire life of a community, they may have intervened uh, neurogenetically as well as biologically and, you know, mutated what was there in a way that was uh, less threatening to, to life on planet. And that's, it's, it's a deep subject, sister. So I think I'll leave it at that. Okay, very good. Now you referred to your book, Lessons in Courage. And I'm curious to know what courage means to you. What's the kind of courage we need on the Pachakuti Mesa path? Trusting soul, honoring spirit, opening heart, transforming mind, healing body. T-H-O-T-H, Thoth. Those are the five chapters of the book. By courage, I mean those that will read or have read the book, being able to um, approach very traumatic, uh, dysfunctional experiences in my own youth that I uh, detail in that book as shamanic rites of passage, as initiations, and use them to strengthen uh, one's sense of enoughness rather than um, recoil in the experience of victimhood. To be volunteers rather than victims, to use that cliche. Uh, a, a, um, I believe it was Carl Jung in his Memories, Dreams, and Reflections that said something like, in the end, the only events in my life worth telling are those when the imperishable world erupted into this transitory one. And that's exactly what these Lessons in Courage is about. It's a narrative as to when the ultimate ground of being, for some reason, decided to cascade through the veil that separates the seen and unseen and influence my life and how much courage and um, and heart it took for me to let that enormous reality into me and taking me to the verge of true madness. That's the courage we're speaking about. Mm-hmm. I'm sure you've experienced it when you went to Sri Lanka, my dear. I know what you're talking about, I think, at least in part. Yes, I do. Now, one question about the audio series that you created with Sounds True, the teaching series, Healing Light, 
and apprenticeship in Peruvian shamanism. In the series, as I mentioned, you give people very detailed instructions on how to set up an altar, consecrate, and work with the altar. And I'm curious how you feel about these teachings being distributed through an audio series. Some people might say, come on, can you really teach people that way? Does it really work? What's your sense? Hmm. Hmm. This is not the first time I've been asked this question, as you can imagine. Hermana Linda. In Spanish, that means beautiful sister. (laughs) So, yeah, well... I did take a compact, I made a compacto, I took an oath of, of lineage transmission that was to be oral with Don Celso. Yet his, his main concern was that our own people in Peru were becoming jaded and disconnected from the healing wisdom of our ancestors. and to the point where after 500 years of Spanish conquest, uh, even after that, it still had survived and needed to survive because it offered great evolutionary value for humankind as 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 a whole. And so therefore, he was certain that if the people from developed nations would be exposed to these shamanic arts and practiced them with reverence in front of our own people who considered them now superstitious and useless and the work of the devil, that they would have a totally new spin on the worth and value of these ancient ways and start to practice them and safeguard them themselves. And lo and behold, he was right. That's one of the reasons he sanctioned me to bring these to the United States and initially to go ahead and transmit their practice orally. So over many, many moons, I first, I opened up my first healing mesa, curandero mesa, at the graduate uh, uh, grand rounds of the psychology department at the State University of West Georgia that was founded by Abraham Maslow in 1986. And since then, uh, uh, you know, have been... uh, teaching this and at the at the beginning all my students were saying when are you going to write something when are you going to write something when are you going to record something when are you record and it just wasn't the time it wasn't the time until i realized that aside from personal renewal that this practice provided the power for planetary renewal uh had been untapped and so I prayed over it, and I was visited in dream time twice by Don Celso with a big smile saying, it is time. Take it in whatever form you can out to the world. And through the blessings of many serendipitous encounters, I got a call from you good folks, and I am so honored to have been able to record Healing Light in your studios. And this is going to be a... Uh, I I expect a major contribution to helping the uninitiated or maybe those with just basic shamanic understanding to take it to a whole other level uh, in their practices uh, as ritualists for 
healing service in the world. So I'm at comf- very comfortable with Don Celso's approval in spirit world uh, after my prayers. Uh, and so all my students are now very happy. I'm even doing other virtual teachings. Just two final things here, my good brother. The first is, I'm curious to know what you feel further about this time that we're in, in terms of the name of your tradition, Pachakuti, meaning world reversal, what this might tell us about the time we're in, what the Pachakuti Mesa tradition has to say about this time. Um, well, Pachakuti is a term that is, has been uh, erroneously associated with uh, prophecy. Uh, We have prophecies in the Andes, uh, and the current prophecy uh, is called, the current era uh, 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 that we're in is called the Taripaipacha, which is the era of re-encounter. Pachacuti literally means in the Inca uh, understanding of history, a 500-year period, and Inti refers to a thousand-year period. And the entire history of pre-Inca and Inca civilization is uh, categorized according to these chunks of time. And unlike the notion of the yugas in Vedanta and in Hinduism, they are much shorter down to human scale than the millions of years, the cosmic years involved in the dreaming uh, within Indra's web, right? Uh, so uh, here's where I'm at with this. Um, Pachakuti means world reversal cosmic transformation. It doesn't necessarily mean anything like the Kali Yuga, which is the, uh, the era of breaking down, of chaos, uh, uh, of strife. That's the closest we have to that era is the Auka Yuga, which we're toward the end of, according to our astronomical observations. Still, we have some time, very much aligned as the you know era of Aquarius, which is the Iron Age also, and we're moving into the Kodi Pacha, which is the Golden Age, much like the Satya Yuga. Yet, the most important to understand is that it's just like the pause between the in-breath and the out-breath. As a planetary civilization or as a planetary culture, we have this opportunity to come together in the moments of these great turnings, of these moments of these great transitions. And as they say in our way, break bread together at the table of the Pachayachachik, the world teacher that is no one but oneself, capital S. So there's a Hasidic saying, I think, our rabbinical teaching that says if the world is ending and the Messiah arrives, first plant a tree and then see if the story is true. <laughs> you know, that's what the Patakuti Mesa lineage is about. You know, these are things that are very interesting, yet not for any other reason than to galvanize love, 
beauty and altruistic relationship among all creatures, including our two-legged. And that's what the Taripaipacha is. And that's where the power of the Pachakuti, or world reversal and transformation, lies. In that pause, that liminal state, that between and betwixt, in the eternal now, wherein resides the power to make it happen. Mm-hmm. And then I wonder, Don Oscar, if we could end the same way we began, if you'd be willing, if you'd be willing to offer our listeners a blessing for their path. Of course. Bringing again awareness to our breath, tongue gently resting against upper palate, jaw mandible relaxed, loose, closing eyes, allowing hands to rest upon knees or thighs with palms open to the heavens. Inhaling fully with every breath, exhaling fully with every out-breath, feeling an awakening, activating, energizing of our higher center, our Hanang Uma, our crown, allowing the shaft of light from the Hanak Pacha the celestial superior world to descend from the above. The shaft of light flowing into our crown, cascading throughout our physical vehicle, cleansing us, purifying us, aligning us. Hold this experience in heart. I atek se muyu taitanji wiyako chapa chakamak. Kai pachi waiku. Kai rikhurik kuichi ayukuna. Temuyok hampika mayukuna. Nyokaiko uhumang yananting kai pakawak. Hampui hampui. These words of blessing. I offer my love to you, dear Sister Tammy, and to the beauty of your great work through Sounds True upon Pachamama. Thank you. Thank you so much for your generosity and all of your goodness and service. Don Oscar Moreau Quesada, a beautiful teacher of the Pachacuti Mesa tradition of cross-cultural shamanism with Sounds True. He's created a new six-session audio learning series called Healing Light, an Apprenticeship in Peruvian Shamanism. Thank you, my good brother. Blessings, blessings, much love. SoundsTrue.com, many voices, one journey. Thanks for listening.